Welcome to Get to the Good Part. This is Chris. I'm Aaron. And today we have an esteemed Gunter joining us, a man who's read the book dozens of times and has his own X-Men, the animated series podcast. Willie Simpson, thank you for joining us. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for having me back. We are going to be covering the movie and the book sort of as a comparison, so we're not chipping back to a particular chapter per se as we're going to be comparing the two now that we've had weeks and weeks since the movie has come out. We've had some time to sort of digest it. We've seen it a number of times, and now we're going to come back with our Gunter perspective on on how this movie stacks up to the book, kind of where our expectations were, maybe where it fell short of our expectations, and kind of where maybe there are parts that we enjoyed. So I'm going to kick it off by starting with the fact that Rotten Tomatoes currently has it at 74%. The tomato meter is 74%, whereas the audience has given it 80%. Guys, I want to quickly go around, and let's get a baseline here for where everybody feels the movie landed. Willie, uh, on a scale of one to a hundred, where did this, where did this land for you? Uh, I think it, it fell right in the middle of the spectrum at about a 50 for me. 50% for you. Yeah. Aaron. Well, I would say it's somewhere between 70 and 75. So let's go with the 73. All right. And for myself, I put it at I put it at a really solid 85. And the reason for me being that I think I went in with potentially low expectations, like I moved the bar really low because I really wanted the movie to succeed. So I felt like if I expected a 30 <laughs> and it did way better <laughs> than that, that that would make it seem better and and kind of bump it up. But thankfully I felt that Spielberg and and the movie in general, albeit very different, and we'll get into that. P.S. By the way, this is a a spoiler podcast, like any of our other podcasts are. There's there are going to be spoilers. If you've not seen the movie yet, for the love of Pete, just turn this off so, and go see the movie. <laughs> and for clarification, spoilers of the movie and the book. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, because we're going to have to pitch to the entire spectrum of the book as well as the movie. So if you're reading along the book. With our normal podcast, uh, come back to this. Come back to this when you have finished the book. So before we go too far, so how many times have each of you seen the movie? Um, I've seen it a grand total of one times. Well, then we can kind of chalk up your 50% to like indigestion maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Let's well, see, <laughs> see, I've only seen it once. I meant to see it a second time, but um, I didn't get around to that. Uh, and my score was still a little bit higher, but, um, how many times did you see it, Chris? I've seen it three times. Three times. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I, I totally like just made it fucking rain as far <laughs> as my ticket sales were concerned. I, I definitely felt like, like I liked it better the second time. And maybe that's because, uh, initial anticipation and just, you know, the whole, it, it, when you're doing a podcast about the subject, your expectations tend you tend to want them to you they, they are higher. Yeah, they're, they're going to be higher. So I needed that time to see it the first time and then go woo, wipe a sweat off my brow. Yeah, and then come back to the theater and really just relax and enjoy it, knowing that I was in for a ride that that uh, I could be more comfortable with. Yeah, hmm. I totally agree. The like the time that I the only time that I was there watching it. I almost felt nervous. Like I wanted it to at least be a decent movie. 
So the whole time I was just worrying about that. And then when <laughs> I was done, I was like, okay, it was decent. I can go see it again. And like you said, just kind of like wipe your brow and be in good shape. I I couldn't have been more comfortable when I saw this movie. So <laughs> I saw it in a nice empty movie theater uh, on a vacation uh, with my wife. Uh, it was on opening weekend. It was in Portland, Maine. So there weren't too many people up there. And it was one of those nice movie theaters where they had those relaxo seats with the automatic controls. Oh. So we were able to take a picture. Yeah. It's on your pot. It's on your Facebook page where you're like kicking back and you actually posted empty theater ready to go. It was the most wonderful movie going experience I've ever had. And I actually, and it actually made me uh, really enjoy the movie despite my rating of five, but I'll get into that more as we go forward. Well, let's, let's kick into the gripe because I'd rather end on a positive note. Yeah. Willie, where, where, uh, where did this movie fail you, man? I mean, uh, go for it. What, where right. did this Where did this drop off for you? I'm going to give you a two pronged answer. Uh, it didn't. The movie, like I like I just sort of alluded to, the movie didn't fail me. As going as taking my wife out on a nice date night, it was a wonderful experience. It was a movie where we were able to just sit back, relax, let it wash over us. It kind of it reminded me of seeing a movie like National Treasure which to me is like an infinitely rewatchable movie that I know is kind of bad, but I can just enjoy turning my brain off and watching Nicolas Cage find a, a treasure from on the back of the Declaration of Independence. Like, uh, <laughs> so in that sense, it like completely exceeded my expectations. And this is a movie I, I actually plan to rewatch many times when it's on Netflix or Hulu or whatever streaming service. So from that standpoint, it was a fine movie to just relax and turn my brain off to from being a fan of the book. It was a massive letdown. So, uh, I, I give it a 10 for relaxing, enjoyable movie experience and a zero from being a fan of ready player one, the book by Ernest Klein. So that's like where I'm coming from. Like for me, you know, just, I don't even want to rail against it as a cinema, as a cinematic experience. I don't think it was a bad movie. I just, I maybe I just had different expectations about what I was expecting from a Ready Player One movie. It sounds like you were just so set on something a little bit more of a one-to-one -one adaptation, because well, no, you I know mean, what? like I, a zero on yeah. the uh, for the from the perspective of loving the book is really harsh. You know what? A zero might be too harsh. You're right. Uh, it, it's not that I was expecting a one-to-one -one recreation of the book or anything close to that. I I fully understood that the the movie was going to be vastly different, and I had no problem. My main issue, and this might be hard to uh, to define in this moment, real quickly, is just that there is a logical pacing to the book that I found absent from the movie. Uh, mm. A lot of people criticize the book for the way Ernest Klein explains things in detail, but I actually found that one of the most rewarding aspects of the book that he would explain the Oasis in a very like a complete way where you really got a sense of the boundaries, the rules, what was possible, what was not possible, how people fit into the Oasis and the different class structures and just the whole social hierarchy of this world. And I thought in the movie, a lot of that was just too brushed over and the logic of moving through the story, it was just, it moved too quickly for my tastes. And there is no, not much uh, tension uh, narratively. 
Well, I'll definitely agree with you that it wasn't paced very well. It was like this 30-minute info dump. And I walked out of there feeling like if I hadn't read the book, I might have been lost. Right. Because I felt the background of having read the book a thousand times was super helpful in understanding everything. Because I felt like not... I I feel like I missed out on the rich descriptions of the world and the world building and and the rules. Yes. I I mean, I I also, I I completely agree, Aaron. Um, I, I felt like the stakes weren't quite as, as uh, dramatic as they were in the book. In the book, you really have the sense that Wade is poor, that the world he lives in is truly terrible uh, like one small difference from the movie in the book is he, uh, the character in the movie, uh, the Ty Sheridan character, remarks how the world is messed up and he lists a few of the catastrophes. But the, all the catastrophes are stupid. He says something like it, like there was an Internet, like something that happened, like an Internet war uh, in the book. The books like there was nuclear war. This world that he lives in is like really on the edge of just complete collapse. Uh, so in the movie, you don't really get that sense that this is the quite the dystopia. I don't know. It just didn't seem like Ty Sheridan was quite the wretch that Wade Watts is in the book. And the the rise from zero to hero in the book was just way more satisfying than what we see in the movie. Yeah, it, it almost seems like there really wasn't opportunity for the character growth that there was in the book. Yes. I definitely, you're talking about a movie that's... Two hours, 20 minutes. Two hours, 20 minutes. And uh, if they had done the book as a three-part movie, that would have worked. I felt that the book itself was paced for a three-part movie. Yes. That you had you had adequate backstory, yes. ramp up. How about, how about a key for every movie? Well... And the pro find well that's what I meant is that yeah. you get a key and a gate for every movie and in fact when you divide the book up that way you get something very close to Star Wars you get a backstory you get the falling and then you get the redemption yes and that divides nicely and that's a great pulse the problem is that he's a new writer uh, he'd only had one film under his belt as far as what he'd written as far as the amount of money it was going to take <laughs> to do this movie. Uh, you don't you got to go to the banker and say, we're going to do this thing about this technology that, by the way, isn't doing very good in the industry right now. And then you've got to convince a guy who traditionally does one off movies to commit to a three parter. Right. Uh, now, granted, they're going to do a Ready Player Two, but that's only because of the success of Ready Player One. You mean it's going to be based on the are they doing a, are they doing a book or a, a movie sequel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> both. Yeah. The book is in, from what I understand, uh, both from the signing that we did in Ohio uh, a number of months back and the recent news is that it's really kind of in this sort of post-production editing stage as far as the book is concerned and that the movie is on the heels. So that's that's a thing. But it, it did feel like they had to take the entire book, which is kind of like a, taking five cars, five dramatically different cars, tearing them down and trying to piece together a single coherent vehicle out of all of the cars and express that all of the cars are represented in that vehicle. And what you get is this, you know, a hopefully good conglomeration, but it's still kind of this, this sort of junked out car. 
Yeah. And and I'm not saying that the movie is junked out. I'm just saying that they took a lot of pieces of the book, moved it around. They did a lot of spackle, which was not in the book, not not per se what the Gunters would consider to be canon, albeit entertaining. They removed the gates almost completely. I kind of get that because you can't do the gates yeah, here. It was time. You know, you needed- well, it's not just time, but how do you do exposition where I entered the gate, I played a movie, and then I got kicked out? Like they did that once, and they did that with The Shining, which so, was amazing. I'll admit. Totally amazing, but I don't know that they could have expressed it in the same way as the book with the movies that they had in the book. And then you've got licensing issues. It literally had to be extraordinarily different. Well, see, and and that's why like I I kind of went in saying this is not gonna be true to the book. And, and I kind of just set the bar low on that end. So that's why mm-hmm. I th- I could be a whole lot harsher, but <laughs> I'm not. Because I knew it was, it, it couldn't, it could never be the book. It just wasn't going to happen. So there's, I, there's too much that's that's that is not cinematic. There's just too much that's not. When he's sitting at school, reading Anorak's Almanac in his glasses. I mean, that's you can't do that, and that that doesn't lend to anything. Well, that's like <laughs> videotaping a library. Yeah. You know what? I don't know. I I, I agree with you on on the this. You can't show him reading. But you, they should have showed him at school. That was a, an element that I think was a huge misstep. That, oh, yeah, yeah. That they don't set up this world that he's a student in high school who's got a shitty life. And this is, it would have shown that the Oasis is so much more part of people's lives than in the movie, which it seemed more just like a, a beautiful distraction that everyone plays around in. If By showing him having to go to school in the Oasis and, the, you know, the school itself is kind of boring. To me, that would have been interesting and it would have helped with the character development of the Wade character more than what we saw in the movie. If they did a three-parter, that would have made sense. But the book spans years in time. He's only in school for the first third of the book. Well, so And he's only in Oklahoma for the first half of the book. Yeah. You have to show a movie not where time passes, but where shit happens from beginning to end. And you don't feel like you have to put up a thing that says five months later. Well, I, I think what it comes down to for me is like when I read the book, I feel like everything is so explicit and purposeful. And taking any of that out is kind of like removing an organ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, Aaron, wait, I'm wait, right. don't you need I the fucking that. spleen? Nah. You don't need a spleen. That's beautifully said, Aaron. I totally agree. When you read a book and you go to the theater to see a book enacted on the screen, I believe that what a large number of people are really looking for is for the director and the screen itself, the movie itself, to reflect on the imagination that the book provided. To literally bring to us and transform in front of us the moments that we loved from the book. There are great screen adaptations the Martian is one of them. The Martian was almost identical to the book. Like, short of the very end, the very end, which I think was purposefully a great jerk to the left to kind of throw you out of your seat. It was one of the best adaptations to movie it, that I've ever seen. To me, that is the absolute gold standard in book adaptations. Hmm. Yes. By far. There are whole sections that they removed out of The Martian to save on time, and I get that, but they were whole sections, literally with a beginning and an end that you could say, that chapter, out. 
and you didn't miss it because you could move from from chapter 20 to 22 and you were good. You couldn't quite do that in this book because uh, the book covers things so segmented, but yet it's all kind of connected together. Uh, it's so uh, you can even say a lot of the Harry Potter, a lot of the Harry Potter movies are fairly decent adaptations, even though they're not perfect. Yeah, not not close. It's funny but you mentioned this, Harry Potter mm-hmm. because I just I've never seen Harry Potter. I've never read the books. I've just this week I've decided with my wife to watch every Harry Potter movie, and we're also mm-hmm. reading the book simultaneously. So <laughs> I hope it's you're watching the movie and then reading the book. That's actually what it, well we we started with the movies and we watched the first two and then I was like wait I want to read these books I, I need to I need an immediate comparison so I've actually gone yeah. back to the books and then I'm gonna see how I want to proceed from there but um so far like you said pretty good adaptation of the book to movie you could not make that kind of assessment from Ready Player One y- yeah. you could you could say it was an alternate universe <laughs> at best yeah at best uh but you know one of my concerns was maybe this is maybe this is at the hands of spielberg and in fact spielberg came in and he added parts of the book that he felt needed to be in there and when i went back and started reading the the screenplay that him and zach penn wrote it's very close to the screenplay which really communicates the fact that early on they recognized there's a lot of shit here that is not going to be good visually and removing the stuff that's not good visually is, is, is a disaster to a number of parts of the overall arc of the story. So you literally have to fill in. You have to do a lot of stuff different. It's kind of like, you know, if I remove this piece, it's a Jenga pile. If I remove this piece, the whole thing falls over. Okay, well, we need to rebuild the Jenga pile in a different way. <clears throat> I'm just still bothered. I, 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 I get that the movie has to be reimagined. But it, mm-hmm. it just it annoyed me to no end that the it doesn't start in school and that the first puzzle, whatever it is, and you can redesign it, it doesn't have to be a guy playing joust, that it that he didn't find the first key on the, the school planet. Mm-hmm. They, I, if I was helping write the script, I would have said, establish the world of his school, make it really boring and ordinary, and show him, like, look at TV screens or whatever of what people are doing in the Oasis, these amazing things, and contrast it with how he's just stuck on this boring, like, semi-lifeless planet where he doesn't have money to go anywhere and do anything. And then the moment he figures out that the first key is on his school planet, that's, like, the moment where the audience applauds and roots for this guy uh, because he, you know, like, it turned out that the most boring place in the whole universe was the source of, you know, the start of this great adventure. And I just think removing that aspect from the movie uh, where instead you have this racetrack that anyone can seemingly access uh, that's open to anybody. It's been discovered. It's not that big of a deal about who discovered it and what it is. Uh, I just I found it just jarring and not satisfying. Yeah, I I agree. You're saying you're saying that there is what I'm hearing from you is that a large part of the character development was pulled out. And and when you remove character development, you remove reason for liking the character and investing in the character. Yeah. And the investment was the school. Now, granted, Ludus was not a plain place. It was depicted in the book yeah. as, you know, basically, uh, you know, arches and beautiful. And, yeah. 
and beautiful. Well, you like could re- you could redesign place. it. Maybe Ludus in the movie is a crappy. Maybe he can only quote unquote afford to go to a crappier Oasis school that's not designed Even if so well. You want to see him. Yeah, you want to see him evolve from a lower level rather than him already having the car, already having the clothes. Yeah, you know, so, okay, he can't afford gas, but we're all kind of maybe you're saying not buying it because he already has a fucking cool car. because part of the problem is is that in the book he really does kind of have nothing, and everybody else has plenty. In the yeah. movie, the fact that he doesn't have as much is only brushed upon very carefully like very little but but he's in the same race as everybody else in the high five so they're t- they're kind of equals they don't it doesn't cost any money to be in the race and it even shows in the race that he doesn't have gas so to do this thing again <laughs> he's got to go to the back of I know, the pile but, but like uh, but and, that's like this little hint that he's not quite as well off but other than that we don't have a hint as to how shitty his life is <laughs> h is like oh scrape and change from dead people that's so bad now, i will say as much as i don't like the fact that they didn't really hit upon his poverty that was pretty fucking brilliant. <laughs> Where he's yeah. sliding in and then scooping the change out of the air. I uh, love the race. That... It, it looked beautiful. I, I thought it was an awesome cinematic sequence. Part of the thing that threw me for the movie was the fact that I did not feel like I was solving the riddles with no. Parzival. And one of the things I loved about the book was that I really felt like, like, like I knew the puzzle, I knew the riddle, and I was kind of solving it with them. Like it was unfolding slowly. So... When he finds the Tomb of Horrors on Ludus, you feel like this, oh, my God, you feel the overwhelming holy crap. Yeah. Like, like some, there's enough time built in that you feel like getting this key is really an accomplishment, where in the movie, you jump right into the middle of everybody knowing what the first key is and where to get it, and everyone competing regularly even and not getting it. And, you know, him going to the archives, which, by the way, I thought was a brilliant way of displaying the, the Anorak's Almanac. I did not. I thought but, that was okay. just, <laughs> uh, I'd like that better than just the idea of watching somebody reading a book personally. Okay. But, it, but that he went in there and figured it out by watching a video and then just kind of pieced it together in a very obscure sort of way. You know, uh, my first thought was kind of like, really that that's the hint that that he's going to take this and, and, risk his car on i and this is sort of a criticism that I, I thought subconsciously but i picked up i think from red letter media when they talked about the movie the fact that the solution to the race was to drive backwards that shit would have been solved on the first day that is people and everyone that i know that's ever played a video game seriously tries to break the game like almost immediately and driving a race backwards is just something that if, if there's trillions of dollars on the line People would like be doing any and everything to crack that race in any way possible. They'd be, you know, they wouldn't even be in cars at a certain point. They'd be like launching armies at King Kong. They would be hacking the code. They would driving backwards would have been like step three on a list of a million things. They were saying uh, that gotta, it was still like a five year. People's yeah. been, people have been trying for that long, right? Right. Mm, I did yeah. not buy that. That would have been solved in a week. If well, all you yeah, had to well, do is did... go backwards, give me a break. <laughs> well, all right. Hold on, hold on a second, though, Then again, I enjoyed when... the race. I thought it was cool. <laughs> when you play a video game, though, and your character dies, you just turn off your computer, and that doesn't affect your bank account. That doesn't affect any assets you own. That doesn't affect 
you know, who you are in the game. So there's a whole other mentality to this. And this is true in the book. So these, this it was the nice thing that they, I think, were able to communicate was that dying in the game means losing a lot of your shit and losing everything. And for a lot of people, that's a, that's a reality situation, it's like losing your bank account. Yeah. So I don't think people would just drive backwards. I don't think that that would be something that would be an obvious poke and prod. Because let's face it, in the video game world, I agree. What you're talking about is user testing. But, you know, but you're, driving you're, you're, forwards you're... for five years got nobody anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But, you know, and a lot of people probably died, too, granted. But, uh, uh, you know, this idea of just, well, I'm just going to smack into a wall and see what happens. You know, that that to me, without reason, would seem insane and but would that, not but... be something that somebody would hack in real life. That's what video gamers do. I, I think we can all... I feel like we can all agree that people in this time period are all idiots because it took it took five years in the book for someone to crack the the, uh, the riddle, and it took five years for someone to crack the the race. Video video gamers do that now because you respawn and there are no repercussions for dying. That isn't the case in the Oasis. It's not the case anywhere. We're under the impression that yeah. he's done the race before, so he's either dying mm. and getting his stuff back, or he's not really dying. He's just like getting his car damaged and starting over in some way. He, you know, he's not getting eaten by Godzilla at the end or whatever it is, the King Kong, whatever the final opponent is. He, he's surviving yeah. a failed attempt. So, and there's lots more. And the idea is that Wade's not rich. So he's maybe not one to be risking himself, but there's lots of other people that, like we said, have lots of resources in the Oasis. And I think of all the people interested in the contest with the stakes being so high as they are, someone would have driven backwards. That's all I'm saying. I just found it to be a, a non-clever solution to the, the first, what's supposed to be the most satisfying key of the whole story. Yeah, and you know who, I, I you know who should have driven backwards because they do IOI. have unlimited resources? Yeah, it's IOI. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hey, you, six, six, five, seven, whatever, drive backwards, see what happens. <laughs> They, they're doing nothing but trying to win, yeah. They definitely had enough resources to throw a lineup of people at a video game or a number of video games at the end of the, at the, end of the movie. So, <laughs> yes, I could see that. Maybe from the degree of, of individuals and not, you know, people who are not under IOI, not wanting to just simply, well, let's just drive off the ledge and see what happens. Let's just drive into the audience and see what happens. Because that's just throwing your money away if you don't have a good reason. Right. Uh, the gamers I know... The UI testers that I know test because their life and their assets aren't on the line. But IOI, on the other hand, has the assets to poke and prod and just drive the fuck backwards. Yeah. Because they could kill someone, no big deal. They respawn, they give them another fucking car, keep moving. Yes, and they have years to try. <laughs> yes, and they've got years to try. I could I could totally see that. Uh, anyhow, let's move on from the, the first yeah. scene in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> It was a really beautiful uh, scene. So I, I really, uh, I mean, I thought Spielberg did his usual great job of presenting a, a beautiful cinematic picture to look at the whole time. Um, you know, I, that that is something that I, I applaud the movie. It looked really nice. Yeah. Yeah, probably we may not have gotten that with another director. I feel like yeah. Spielberg was able to bring in the big guns. The camera you know, moved well, beautifully, said. yeah. The camera moved beautifully. Yeah, it's like really <laughs> soaring wonder, around. cinematography. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I wonder if if the same gripe wouldn't possibly exist, say for Transformers, <laughs> where 
where you know you have a lot of cinem- cinematic brilliance and every scene looks like you know some sort of glamour shot as a an original fan of the cartoon and toys i always feel something is incredibly lacking from the movies no matter you know how much it looks like awesomeness and explosions to me it just kind of comes off as giant garbage piles of cars having sex with weapons <laughs> That it, should have it been, does. It just it, they should have put that on the poster. It's junk piles fighting or fucking one of the two. Right. But you just you don't know what's going on. You just see metal on metal in metal with a lot of grunting. All right. Ready <laughs> Player One doesn't have that problem. It looks beautiful. I, I think the colors really popped. Uh, I love the CGI world, which I thought might have been a problem. I, I think I think it was actually realized very nicely. So it, right, it, it didn't great. look like junk piles of crap uh, fighting each other like Transformers does <laughs> all right so uh, of the movie what were you able to identify what came across is identical or nearly identical to the book and the word nothing doesn't you cannot say nothing no i have a good answer for this <laughs> okay uh the perform what's his name mark rylance uh the the mm-hmm. guy the guy who is james halliday i thought was pitch perfect i love that actor i loved his performance i thought there's a lot of subtlety to it um, I found him humorous. I found him al- alive, and I I really wanted to see more of him uh, than boring Wade. <laughs> so I I was I I love the Halliday character. I thought he was just great. Aaron, uh, it wasn't what I envisioned for the movie portrayal, but uh, yeah. I don't know if anything I- identical. But I would say probably one of the the, the best portrayal from book to movie might have been the Distracted Globe, right. Right, and I they were going to originally cut that out. That was originally not going to be part of the movie. That would have been really. That would have been unfortunate because that was <laughs> that was such a visual cornucopia of. It's a it's a key things. scene in the book as well. It's strange that they would cut that. Well, when they originally wrote the screenplay, what they were told was that that would be too expensive. Oh, weird. But to all hear Ernest rendered anyway. It, yeah, exactly. Well, it's all well, it's all one computer program. That's all well and good, but you got to keep in mind is it's not just computer programming. You've also got to take individuals, and they're using mocam. So oh. these people are actually acting the parts. Now they've got to act these parts. You've got dance scenes. You've got a weightless scene. So you've got people that are on rigs. That's a much more complex scene than say where there's gravity. Right. Okay. And on top of that, uh, you know, you do have this element, but they've got to draw out all that stuff. You don't just they're not just snapping their fingers and then boom you know, scene unfolds itself. So they've got to draw in a lot of complicated elements. They've got a lot of characters they've got to create. And on top of that, the distracted globe is filled with one-off characters that they would have to get licensing for. Yeah. So for this one scene to make a difference and it not be part of a giant action scene, I could totally see why they would leave that out. But Spielberg came in and he brought the book with him and he had like a number of chapters earmarked where he said, I think we need to have these parts in. Like, these parts are important, and we need to have these in. And that's Spielberg insisted on having the distracted globe in the movie. Was that the only part he said was going to be in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Harsh, bruh. Harsh. <laughs> well, the no, the, thing, end, uh, the end battle was pretty, like, as close as you can get it to the book. It oh, was yeah, a big no, the, clusterfuck the of was things. Awesome. Yeah, I liked it, yeah. I like the fact that you could at least follow the characters through, as you already said, this giant clusterfuck of fighting. Yeah. Uh, I thought that 
for the licensing that they had that uh, that not having all of the robots that were in the book helped to kind of focus in on the key characters and and their movement throughout the battle. I think initially I was kind of hoping that there would be more of these giant-esque robots in a much larger and drawn-out battle scene. But again, two hours and 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Uh, and they needed to get to that final line. Also, they weren't on this sort of home planet where Anorak lived. They were on planet Doom. Doom. Yeah, that was weird to me. Yes, I found that strange. Uh, and it was very, it's a very different atmosphere. So it's this hellish landscape versus what I perceived as sort of like these forests and this giant sort of grand castle, like yeah. something that you plucked out of uh, Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah, exactly. Shit. You know what I was going to say. It was like. Uh... It was uglier than I thought. Yeah, it's, it's, it was just hell landscape. Uh, what I thought was particularly, uh, what I liked that they sort of transitioned over, uh, there is this moment at the end of the book when when Parzival and Artemis sit on a bench and they have a moment about where they're going to kiss. And that's actually how the book ends, is that they break away from the game for a moment to appreciate reality. This is this first moment in ever having actually met Artemis. And they sit on this bench and they have this little conversation and it ends with a kiss. And the end of the, the book is this final admittance that this is the first time that he's not wanted to escape reality. And right. they took that part and they stuck it into the middle of the movie. Yeah, that was a I like the fact that at least they kept it because I thought that's a touching moment. Like when they first come together and this is their first meeting and his first sort of moment alone with her to evaluate the fact that, you know, hey, you don't you don't look ugly to me. I, like you needed that in order to solidify the reasoning for their relationship moving further. You You just described probably the biggest emotional problem with the movie. The, one of the major themes of the book was this idea that people on the Oasis, they're connected, but they're not connected in real life. So by making the meeting between Parzival and Artemis uh, almost like a matter-of-fact event, as opposed to this enormous buildup, I think was a, a huge narrative mistake. And it, it takes away from the dramatic tension, the romantic tension. Um, it takes away from the mystery of who Artemis is. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just, it was a big misfire. And the fact that Artemis is not to be shallow or superficial, but she's portrayed by in the movie, a beautiful woman. And mm -hmm. it's, and they still try to play up the angle. Oh, you wouldn't like me in real life. I'm ugly. It's you're not ugly. You're, you look like a Hollywood actress with a, a little yeah. purple, like discoloring on your skin. No guy would ever care about that. <laughs> they would be like, Oh wow. You're, you're really gorgeous. I, and she was. So I just, they, that was like a big, like clumsy misplay in my opinion. And, and almost like not, no one understanding uh, one of the larger themes of the book that, you know, trying to make a human connection that in, in real life, it, it has more value than, um, than these virtual connections. Yeah. And frankly, he didn't have enough time to get to know her as a person to look beyond uh, right. Yeah, her supposed hideousness, which she doesn't yeah. have. <laughs> mm. it, it was like that was one of those things that just irked me because it's like it felt so rushed. Like their relationship or the growth of their relationship was compressed to no time at all, and yet he's supposed to, you know, he pro professes uh, his love to her. Like you don't even know this girl. Yeah, it was awkward. 
but that's how it is in the book. Yeah, but, but it no, was but, awkward for a different reason. In the but that's over a much longer period of time. They have conversations. He tells her things. In the book, he's uh, awkward for a different reason. He's awkward because he's you know antisocial, you know nerd that can't talk to women, and he's you know and he's sweaty and nervous, and he's a virgin. In in the movie, he's he's almost he's a real cool customer just through and through. What? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nearly every interaction he has with her in the Oasis is this this nerdy, awkward, you know, oh, high five. You know, yeah, he may have been a cooler character out of the Oasis than he was in it. Like maybe the problem is that it was Ty Sheridan and he comes off way more confident in person than he did in the Oasis. Maybe that's the problem. Is that maybe. The, the flip here is that in the Oasis, he had stronger moves than when he was out of the Oasis. Because that's what his his place of comfort was. I'm just saying I was embarrassed for Wade in the book compared to in the movie. I wasn't embarrassed for him. Yeah, you know, he, was, I, he was a lot less cringeworthy in the movie. Yeah. Well, I think that has a lot to do with dialogue and the fact that in, again, two hours and 20 minutes, there's and a lot of action, not a lot of room for dialogue. So you got to make the dialogue count. And anything that comes off too crazy cringy without pointing <laughs> out the fact, because like, for example, the very beginning in H's garage where they're kind of doing that little quizzing of each other. And he's just kind of he's he's just a little bit too anxious and says some shit that's that's awkward, but it's not cringeworthy. It's just awkward. And you, you get that it's communicated quite clearly for the purpose that he's not good with the ladies. <laughs> Whereas when he's out of the Oasis, he seems to be much better with the ladies. Mm. And in the book, he's really shitty with the ladies on both fronts. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know? I, I will say that, that their dialogue in uh, H's garage, when they're just like spouting off their holiday facts, just felt so manufactured. Forced. Awkward. <laughs> ah. It, yes, that's the point. It hurts <laughs> me to no end. Poorly that's written could no, poorly but, but, written could be another way of putting that. Chris. Yeah, uh, it just felt like uh, okay, forced exposition. Yeah, uh, it, a little bit. It just rubbed me the wrong way. Like, okay, we need to get this information out there. Okay, they're both super smart about James Halliday, and we need to know these things. But they did it so like boom, 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 boom. You get all that information. Oh, it no, that bothered me. It is a, it's difficult how much they try to communicate certain points in the book in order to have communicated it and move beyond it. And it felt like like the exposition in the beginning communicated the poverty. Great. We have this moment where he has to scrape change because in his car, okay, that, that it's, was almost those things that's kind of like, we need to emphasize the fact that he's poor. Well, he's in a fucking DeLorean and he has these really cool clothes on. Yeah, you're having going to have a hard time communicating that. All right, well, what if we just shuffle him to the back of the race? And I'm not too hung up on the race. I love the race for a number of reasons, but I've, it did feel like in moments that they just did something to communicate a point, and then rather than incorporating into the story smoothly, they just moved on and never touched back on it again. This is why I feel like having read the book three or four dozen times, that was a problem. <laughs> I wish I wish we could have wiped the book from our brains when we saw the movie just to get a, a clean audience reaction to yeah. the, the way the, the exposition was handled. Like maybe the exposition's not that bad, but if you've read the book ten times, you get all the exposition, but it's delivered so unsatisfyingly that it seems like it's a misstep. 
but maybe it's not maybe to a general audience it's like fine and it, it all right. makes sense and it, it's it's kind of interesting uh so i i can't tell like as a hardcore book fan you see the exposition right. you know that there's more to it and you're like where's the rest of it or this isn't like being delivered in a satisfying way so in a way in, in those moments i was kind of like i wish i didn't read the book so i can see what the, if this movie's better than what i'm perceiving it as yeah you know what the maybe, novels, it, maybe it is you know you know what the first thing i did after i uh watched the movie i started the reading restroom. the I started reading the book again <laughs> the movie in your head was probably better than the movie you saw with when you're reading the book oh of course i was like uh, i mean i left there thinking okay great the the mental images in my head of how i you know run through the the book it, the, the mental images all those are safe now they are <laughs> they are unmolested <laughs> i think this movie runs into a problem and i think this problem is very similar to hackers and that is trying to communicate. Wait, don't talk. Don't uh, say you have problems with hackers. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. Follow me here. Oh, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Go on. <laughs> follow me here. I do love hackers, follow me though, here. for the record. Work with me. Jesus uh, I'm, Christ. I'm with just you. I'm work with, with me here. The problem that hackers had was that it tried to visually communicate something that is not real. And very boring to, in real life. To an, to an audience that knows how boring it is. Yeah. When you have sys admins sitting at a system, it is not a 3D set of cubes <laughs> where they're pounding on a giant keyboard. Dunk, 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 dunk. And then Pac-Man virus yeah, has been Pac introduced. Man. And you see Pac-Man going across the fucking screen. You don't have those moments. Like the closest to that was when he's sitting there typing away and they do this high speed and they're playing with swords in the background. Printer is printing off paper in reams, you know, and he has this fractile spin of code in the back of his head. It, it tried to visually communicate something that is very difficult to visually communicate. That's true. This book had a lot of elements that were incredibly difficult to visually communicate. So rather than go the direction of hackers, which, by the way, I do love that movie for a number of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> this went in a completely different direction. It said, if we can't visually communicate it, fuck it, we're going to do something else. Right. And when you do that with one thing in this movie and with this book, you've opened the floodgates because you've kind of broken it. It's a bit like, well, fuck, we broke that. Patch it. Well, we patched it, but now the other side doesn't work. Patch that. Well, that's not going to work. Well, then break off that piece and put something else in. It's almost like this cascade of changes that had to happen. Uh, it felt like they, they broke the fucking egg and they tried to reassemble it mm. and it didn't come out looking like an egg. And I think a lot of people who expected a fucking round egg uh, got this sort of, this crunchy angled, <laughs> what feels like a rushed piece together version of an egg. Uh, they, could, they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yeah. I just think, Chris, based on what you described, they overthought it. You know, the book has a very simple structure. It's like a three-part, you know, story. He, he has to find three keys to win and go through mm -hmm. three, three gates. And it's about rising from a character that has nothing to a character that has it all, that has all the power. That's your basic yeah. nar narrative. And the rest are just decorative details. That's why I was expecting different stuff. I didn't care that, uh, you know, they went to um, The Shining instead of War Games. You know, that that's mm -hmm. just a detail. Um, I, I didn't care that they, you know, it's like a whole bunch of Warner Brothers characters instead of Star Wars or anime, whatever it might be. 
like that that stuff can all be interchanged but the most satisfying element to the book to me is just like the steady progression of the pro- of the puzzle solving and the problem solving of trying to you know solve an impossible puzzle and the wish fulfillment of what if you were the guy or girl that figured it all out uh, you know an impossible rubik's cube or whatever it is and i just felt right. that was lack that tension and that satisfying logical progression was lacking from the movie it felt like it felt like a very nice paintbrush for 2 hours of just pretty visuals like well directed like set pieces and things but lacking that like grinding out you know narrative whatever it is satisfaction the movie did not provoke the same character investment and and story investment that the book did that's yeah. what i'm getting here yeah. right i'd agree on that note I, I think i went in knowing right off the bat that would be the case and again i lowered the bar very low <laughs> which means which means that the bar went very high when they were initially doing their first round of interviews a good six months before the movie came out and the guy playing nolan sorrento and ben mendelson thank you ben mendelson he said, I'm playing a different Ben Mendelsohn. And right off the bat, the community went apeshit. Like, holy crap, he's going right. to do something different. And from that point forward, there were lots of indications that things were going to be very, very different, even when the trailers came out. And one of the things that I like Ryan sort of falling back on, which is this isn't going to be the same story. It's going to be a movie. It's going to be done by Spielberg. And creatively, it's in the hands of the original writer. And if he wants to write a completely different story with the same characters, call it an alternate universe, then you just have to sit back and trust that it's going to be an enjoyable ride, assuming you do not compare it to the book. And we entered with this, you saying that your biggest issue is that you compared it to the book. Right, yes. And who can't? Who can't? It's based on the fucking book. Yeah. Uh, But the, the movie felt more like an homage to the book than... Uh, than using the book as the driver for the story. You, you described it perfectly. It was an homage. So, and and in in that sense, it's it was jarring for fans of the book to behold. Mm-hmm. I think because it's not that I it's not that I wasn't expecting an homage. I probably was to a certain extent, but I I, I don't know. It's I, like I, I, I wasn't in a position more. to appreciate an homage, an homage to the book. I was in a position to want to see the movie, see the book come to life. I don't blame you. Yeah. I totally get that. And I think there was a part of me that, that wanted that too. There were moments where, where I felt that I got that particularly where, uh, Parzival and Sorrento are going face to face and they have that moment before the explosion where he kind of tells him off. Now, granted it wasn't word for word, not even freaking close. And the entire length of the experience didn't have the buildup that the book did. Right. But I loved the fact that they kept the moment where he's invited to come in and he faces Sorrento uh, in person. And I liked how they visually portrayed that as a hologram. That was awesome. I really yeah, like that. that. <laughs> and Sorrento, when he get turns, goes from, you know, hey, I'm a geek like you to asshole. And then he walks through his hologram like it's the rudest thing you could possibly do. <laughs> it's just to walk through a person. As a hologram like that, that is really purposefully him being a dick and then him pulling out his earpiece, dismissing his servants and saying, I was really hoping you'd say no. <laughs> and then and then him pulling off the headset running and then the stack exploding and falling that that entire scene, while not 
perfect to book was close enough for me to go, God, if there was anything they could have kept in the book or in the movie from the book, this was it for me. This didn't set it at an 85, but I felt like this was needed. You had to have this confrontational moment. Yeah. And I'm really glad that they kept it in. I really liked how Parzival tried to test him a little bit. And then you got that, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the conscious telling uh, Sorrento, he's trying to trick you. I, I, I liked that little part of it a lot. And I, uh, they hit, they had the oology peeps in his ear. Yeah, and just the fact that Parzival wasn't just, like because Parzival was a fucking idiot in the book for even doing the meeting. We we established that, um, <laughs> you know. But I, <laughs> the, I, I think you established that. <laughs> no, we all know he sh- he shouldn't have done that. Right. But the, but the fact that like this, the the Parzival as portrayed in the movie was a little bit more uh, street smart and was really trying to test him that additional part of his character i i appreciated so you got more out of that scene in the movie than the book well no, no, i once i got some more out of it i got something different out of it and i liked some of the the change that they made to parzival's character because he didn't just go in there without a plan you know he kind of he went in there and he tried to you know see how legit Sorrento was uh didn't really work because he was being fed dialogue but nonetheless he didn't just go in there you know putting on his Sunday best and a fuck off attitude you know right (laughs) I definitely felt in the movie that it was communicated better that he might fold like he might take the money yeah 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 and I love the moment and it, it is expressed in the book as well as the movie but the fact that he had to you know, sort of put his character on visual mute, threw off the head headset, and is just panting out of panic and and just sheer terror of the fact that he's just been offered millions of dollars, which I felt was underplayed in the book, uh, and maybe it's just the way that it hit me, and then put it back on and continued these sort of negotiations. That this part of the movie I really enjoyed. And I felt was absolutely necessary to have in there. And I suspected they were going to have it in the movie because of the first trailer. There's a moment where he pulls the head, the head, the visor off in a panic. But if you pause it, you can see Sorrento in his headset. Yeah. And I was like, Ooh, I hope that's the moment, you know? All right. So moving on. So we've got a lot of parts here that are different. Let's, since we've kind of circled onto this anyhow, what are some parts that you guys really enjoyed? Maybe that was different from the book that maybe helped to redeem the movie in some way. And let's just say separate from the book parts that you enjoyed in the movie. Well, I mean, Hmm. I think the, you know, pardon the pun, the shining moment was the shining. (laughs) (laughs) That part was fucking amazing. It was brilliant. Like between the, the countdown and, uh, I mean, it was great. I loved that part. I mean, I was, I, I I felt awestruck, which doesn't happen to me a lot when watching a movie. <laughs> Willie, I just I enjoyed the movie, and and I know that's weird to say plainly, but when I can when I separate everything I know about the book out of it, I I really enjoyed the. I thought it was well cast. I I thought it was a very agreeable uh, cast of youngsters, and Spielberg is always really good getting performances out of teenagers and young adults. 
And, I, you know, so I really liked um, Daido and Shoto from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. I thought they, they popped a lot. Um, and all the characters, uh, Artemis and, and, and even wait, you know, I like Ty Sheridan. Uh, I'm a big X-Men guy, obviously, with my X-Men Task podcast. So he's Cyclops in the mm-hmm. new iteration of movies. So I'm always pulling for Ty Sheridan. I liked uh, Ben Mendelsohn as Nolan Sorrento. Um, I like TJ Miller as Irock, even though the oh. character was radically different. I thought he was amusing. He um, was hilarious. I, yeah. I think Spielberg really brought out the best of the actors. And there's just a lot of like spunk and and energy to them uh, that, you know, you you wanted to root for them. It, it was like you were cheering that you were cheering for them in a way that I wasn't expecting. It wasn't the way I was expecting. I was expecting to cheer for them based off the book of the things they specifically accomplish in the book. In this movie, I was cheering them on in their adventure and taking down this big evil corporation. That's more of what the movie became about them. The book was more about Parzival's personal journey. And the movie is more right. about just like saving the world. And it, it was nice. It, it was it was it was satisfying and the, the character beats were were well uh they landed well for me in that sense. And and I enjoyed it as like a breezy Goonies type Spielberg adventure. You know, Goonies was the first thing that, that kind of came to my mind as you were describing it. Because that's how you feel about Goonies. You've got these this group of very different, somewhat disparate characters that are connected you might call them misfits misfits (laughs) sure uh and they they begrudgingly come together in order to do this thing that's greater than themselves but that if there was a character development in my mind it wasn't any one character that developed better than another it was that a group of characters pretty well communicated this idea that they couldn't do it by themselves as different and unique as they were, that they had to come together in order to be more than they were individually yeah. together. And, and it, it's, it's nicer. It's done better in the movie than in the book, because in the book, they all seem kind of annoyed that they have to team up and they still uh, they're almost even at the end. Artemis is not fully trusting Wade or Parzval, even though she's had a romantic relationship with him. Um, in the movie, it's it, it's it's just it's more earnest and it's nicer in the way they have to come together. In the book, they yeah. still I still feel like they have their daggers, they have their walls. You know, when uh, H finally meets meets parts of all in the book, like they're really uncomfortable about it because of obvious reasons. But even still, it's awkward. Um, in the movie, it's yeah. just it's like they're just friendlier, and it, it's and like I said, Spielberg has always been a master of directing young adults and 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 sort of group acting in in those scenarios. See, I, I th- kind of thought that the whole group coming together thing, just like in the book, that there was that struggle to actually realize that they had to be a group to solve the the uh, to to find the Easter egg, and that was actually built in to the the last gate. But in the in the movie, it seems like well. Most of them already sort of knew each other. Oh, look, there's Daito and Sho, and they're they're in the race with us. Oh, look at that. And it's like, hey, look, there's Artemis. And then they actually get to meet and whatever. And then they kind of just by happenstance, you know. Uh, they all live in Columbus, Ohio. Well, yeah, they all live in Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and uh, Artemis sees that Parzival goes backwards. And he says, well, I get I let it slip to H that that's how you do it. And then Daito and Sho figured it out. And then they go to the second, uh, find the second key together. There really wasn't that 
uh, solo Gunterism that there was in the book. The achievement so is you, lessened in the movie. Yeah, but well, the, the you don't have the time. You just don't have the time. And maybe the problem is that it is poorly communicated in two hours and twenty minutes. Yeah, and maybe. It, yeah. The, the book is fourteen hours on audio, or maybe even longer. It's been a while since I've listened, but right. it's it's long. It's long, and and this is not Stephen King. Like the problem with a lot of Stephen King movies that come out is that. Stephen King wants it to be as accurate to the book as possible. He's not particularly satisfied if it is not close to accurate. It's the reason why Stephen King was not a big fan of The Shining, as they've already shown. They, they reflected this in the movie, but that the good movies that are good Stephen King movies are the ones that diverge away from the book in order to make a better movie. Mm. And this had to do that. You don't have 14 hours to communicate all of this. You've got two hours and 20 minutes, so you've got a moment at best, maybe a handful, to, to kind of point out these nuances. It shouldn't, and, uh, it shouldn't it, have been a, a single movie that you, you Chris, you nailed it yes. in the beginning. Like, speaking of Stephen King, there was a recent adaptation of one of his books, the one, uh, I think it's like 112363, the book about killing okay. Kennedy. Like, a guy travels back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination. That I, that's a Did that work out? it's a long ass book. It's like eight hundred pages. Um, right. They, they turned it into a ten part Hulu miniseries. You know, oh each, ep- each, yeah. each episode ranges from an hour to an hour and twenty minutes. And it was di- there's a lot of key differences. You know, it wasn't there's things you could nitpick compared to the book to the TV show. But the point is, they had time to to go into all the details they wanted to go into edit out the stuff they wanted to edit out, you know, make key changes mm-hmm. here and there. But like to me, ready player one probably should have been, it should have either been a trilogy of movies or it should have been mm-hmm. a, a 10 part HBO or, you know, yep. uh, Netflix miniseries with an enormous budget and make it an event like that. And I think you would have had a chance to go deep into all the different characters, their home life, their motivations. You could see how talented they are and how special they are and why we care about them. As a solo movie, it was like they just I don't know why they I don't know. Like, I, I felt like there was enough there to to really build a universe worth exploring. Well, there's no trust. Yeah, there, there's just it's well, look at it from a banker's perspective. They got to finance this incredibly expensive movie and what, what they're bringing to it is Spielberg. And so Spielberg brings a lot of cred to the table. Ernest did not. He had one movie. Well, he had a best selling book. I mean, Hunger Games. Like, what's Hunger Games? It, Hun- Hunger Games is just like best... Ready Player One. You know, it's a it's no, no, a... no. It's different. It, it wasn't a best selling movie. They actually sold the screenplay before the book hit the market. For they Ready never one? knew it was. Yeah, I know, but that's the screenplay so... <laughs> was written. I know. It only became a a bestseller after the fact. So, well, why why is it immediately sold to be a movie if it's it hasn't even proven itself as a best selling book? Oh, well, they can do that. Like, a lot of people will look at it as and go, this is this is the screenplay for it. Oh, yeah, I dig it. And then there's a whole back-end bidding war that happens for a number of screenplays that we don't ever hear about. Right. And even for books that go out, this is a thing. This happens. Yeah. I know, but to so me, that book- speaks to the fact that they somebody, that they was a real lot of hype and buzz around the original book, and, and it proved to and the book proved to be a bestseller. So and then it, it took years to make the movie. So you've got all these mm-hmm. years of buildup and and proof that the book was there's a lot of interest behind it. So then, you know, put some put some more muscle behind the movie making. I think the idea here is, you know, when people are looking at the original screenplay, what they're really looking at is somebody who wrote it for the screen 
that you know wrote it as a movie, not just a book. And that's originally how Ernest Cline got into writing it. This was his first foray into writing a novel. He originally wrote screenplays. So he wrote the screenplay for this, which again was similar to how Zach Penn and him worked it out eventually. But that's what he sold. And that's what ended up getting out there. So you've got these people that are kind of like investing in this screenplay. Right. And it's a one-off. Like you couldn't go with a screenplay that wasn't giant big budget with with any creds at all, without any creds at all, and say, I'm selling a three-part movie. He could now. He could not then. Hmm. So my hope is that maybe, maybe in, in you know, because this is a universe where Spider-Man gets how many freaking reboots has Spider-Man <laughs> had now? For the love yeah. of God. You know, that maybe there will be a reboot of this in the near future, or maybe there will be like a 10-part, I would love a 10-part miniseries oh, and I, I would love do, this book. Yeah, absolutely. And I would do it as a, you know, it, it's going to be tough to reboot it um, as, a, as a live action thing. They should reboot it as a 10-part cartoon, animated. Be a lot easier and cheaper. I don't know. Yeah, cheaper. When you look at production values and, and shows like Westworld, for example, yeah, you know, miniseries and and multi-parters are no longer something where where it's it's if the money isn't there. Well, it's you know, when West, you see Lost in Space. Well, Westworld's really the perfect example you mentioned because that was a movie in the seventies, uh, based off a book, correct? And it took mm-hmm. like thirty-five years later they turned it into a high-budget HBO spectacular. Yeah, it's nothing. So we nothing might, like the book though, and nothing right. like the original. Movie. Exa- exa- yeah, but the point is, it's they you're getting like a a real serious, modern, updated, like nuanced take on Westworld in the year 2018. You might have to wait to the year 2035 to get the Ready Player One. You know, the, so, for someone to yeah. come back and be reinterested enough to like to redo it like the way it was supposed to be done. So yeah, I'm, know, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying it, it might just take a few decades. <laughs> I think by then I mean, people will be times... sick of '80s references. I mean, how many times have they got, have they got to to fucking spin out Spider Man? That's well, that's what I'm really. Spider Spider-Man... Man's like the. You can't compare it to Spider Man. Spider Man is first of all, he's the number one intellectual property of Marvel, which is this insane corporate behemoth, you know, mm-hmm. brand. So, you know, Spider Man's gonna get rebooted over and over just because he's like Mickey Mouse. He, there's always going to be <laughs> an interest in all superhero. Yeah, I mean, he's like, I mean, okay, not, he's he's the Batman of the Marvel <laughs> oh. universe. He's the most popular. So that's um, true. Yeah. And Batman got respun a number of times, and I he get always, it. and he the, always the will. Yeah. So I mean, those things, I don't think they're fair comparisons because they're they're in the the, the pop culture zeitgeist in a way that's has so much more depth than than other things. I, you know, I think like, it's a fair comparison in the sense that it could be done and it wouldn't piss people off and right. or at least not enough to where it would, it would, it would jeopardize their money making endeavors. It wouldn't piss me uh, off if there's a ready player one reboot next year. I'd be all, I'd be like, all right, let's, let's, <laughs> let's try again. You will. It's going to be called ready player two. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to see that too. They I'll pay to see that as well. So if things that were added that you enjoyed, you've already mentioned that you enjoyed the shining. One of the things that I really liked about The Shining was that, first off, I didn't know how they were going to do the whole movie thing. And I was a little disappointed that War Games wasn't in- introduced yeah. or wasn't involved. But again, it, you got licensing issues and maybe even it's a convenience thing or what translates well to the current story. But 
I'm not a big Shining fan. I've not seen all of the Shining, but I've seen enough parts to actually put the damn thing together. <laughs> uh, but what I loved was the attention to detail that truly the movie popped for me when they walked through the doors. And I, it was so subtle, I didn't realize it. But in, in reading articles after the fact, they said that they got the film grain yep. wow. from the original movie. And then they applied that same grain to the characters as they walked through the doors. They got two actresses that were nearly identical to the actresses in the original movie. Whoa. That, that just a lot of the details were either digitally recreated or literally recreated. And to me, it just felt so different. It, like they had walked onto the set of a, a different movie. It, it, it almost, felt, for me, it felt like I was in, in the Oasis in the movie. Like yeah. that, that was the first point where I, was, I really yes. felt like I was stepping into a virtual environment because it was one that I was so familiar with. I've seen that movie tons of times and I felt like I was there. It was just fucking brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Just, great. just short of seeing Jackal Nicholson, which you saw almost shadows of him yeah, like I, running behind you. It, you. You almost you could have sworn that maybe his face would be pulled in there somewhere. Uh, there was just, it's something there rang of that, smacked of it, if you will. Uh, I just, it was just neat. And again, The Shining is not a movie that I'm interested in at all. So what I ended up playing was the role of H, kind of discovering this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was so, so funny. Immediately, I'm fucking relating to this. Like, <laughs> I'm H. Like, I've seen enough of this movie to know something fucked up is going to happen. But that's it. So the room that H falls into, the bath scene... All of that shit I was not familiar with. Like, I totally got the maze and the freezing and the knife and the two kids and the blood. I've not seen enough of the movie to piece all of that together completely. Yo, you know, guys, I just figured out, like, the biggest mistake of this movie based on everything you just said, Chris. That they didn't, like, lean into Spielberg as an asset, as a creative inspiration uh, more than they did. They were almost <laughs> afraid to go there. Like, oh, I don't want to praise myself. I don't want this to be about me. I want it to be about the book. It's like, what the, you know, the book, whatever. Like, you're Steven else. Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> you're Steven Spielberg. That's, that's... Let's go into the Lost Ark. You know, let's go into Jaws. Ernest addressed that, actually. Uh, he, he, he told Steven Spielberg, look, you know, th this book wouldn't be this book without your influence. We have to include your stuff. They actually met in the middle on this. So the <laughs> things where Steven Spielberg was like an executive producer, not a director, those are the parts of his background that you see incorporated into the movie. Hmm. Uh, where he was a director, you did not see any of his works. But no. I, I, here's what I get. Here's what I get. Imagine going to a musician, a full-fledged musician, and saying, man— I really liked this really popular song you did, but we're going to do something different, but I'd like to lean on that song you did. That's an insult to go to somebody and say, I want you to do what you did before. That's not creative. And it's a bit like going to the county fair and playing that one song you've played a million times and now no one will listen to your new shit. So mm -hmm. I don't know if it was necessarily Spielberg going, I'm totally cheesed out by doing my stuff or seeing my stuff or more to the effect of, I did that shit already. I've moved beyond that. I want to be creative, not iterative. See, that's yeah, why I, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a guarantee it would work, but I think it, it was an avenue worth exploring because he obviously had a lot of reverence for Kubrick, and that's why the mm -hmm. Shining scene played so wonderfully. I think, like with just with that in mind, this is all in like retrospect. I think it could have they could have found a way to cleverly play on 
the career and works of Spielberg in a really fun and satisfying way um, mm-hmm. that it could have been interesting. Um, but I, it, right in practice, I don't know if that really works or if that's feasible or creatively smart. I'm pretty sure I read that the production team hid other Spielberg mm, yeah. references in the movie. <laughs> yeah. But there's shit they snuck in that he did not now, know granted, about. Granted, these are things that got snuck in, so they're not. Yeah. You know, well, key sneaking elements. in references are different than like making it like major plot elements. So, right. And and it's it's this whole point that made me so worried when I heard that Spielberg was not going to be self-referential. I was like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film that shouldn't have happened, and this is the reason why I gave it an eighty-five percent, being because in my mind, this was the impossible film. There are so many licenses you've got to capture. And they've already said, like, it took eight years to get the licenses that they could get. There were some that they couldn't. I mean, Ultraman. Uh, <laughs> like, Ultraman only last week. Yeah, last week. Yeah. Settled on who the owner was going to be. Wow. It, it, was, it was in the middle of, it was in a complete toss up. Like, not even the power of Spielberg could get Ultraman into the movie. How is that possible? Because. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you've got two companies that are fighting over the rights for this thing. They're in negotiation, and you can't do anything with that creative material, that licensed material, until somebody owns it. I guess. Because by handing that off to someone, you put, you, you're making the executive decision to potentially risk the reputation and reduce the value of that creative material. You know, if they took Star Wars and pissed on the Millennium Falcon while standing outside, like on the strut of the Millennium Falcon— like that, that, that is a, a slight against the material. Right. And it could reduce its value in other, in other realms. This is part of the reason why Star Wars did not sign off on anything in this movie. They, yeah. went, to, they went to Disney and said, Disney, we'd like to use Star Wars. And they told Spielberg, no. Yeah. I, I did <laughs> like the, I like the Star Trek uh, funeral flowers uh-huh. at, at Halliday's funeral. I, I enjoyed that little reference. You know, I, the funny part is that I don't. Th- I think Ernest is more of a Star Wars fan. Yeah, he than, certainly is. Yeah, than a Star Trek fan, and I wonder if this wasn't like a smack in the <laughs> face to Star Wars. Yeah, Paramount was. Yeah, Paramount was a little more open to the idea of getting their property out there. I'm willing to bet that that was like a pivot point. Like, look, we got turned down by Disney, so we would really like it if you would give us a little something to throw in their face. And they're like, "Fuck, hold on, let me grab in my pocket." There was discussion of Star Wars in the movie, though. I feel someone was made a reference to the Force or Darth Vader or something. It wasn't totally absent. You're allowed to. You're not allowed to use somebody else's creative works. You could not take the Millennium Falcon. Right. Otherwise, Kevin Smith wouldn't have a career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so do you think Disney is now regretting it because no. the movie did make what more than half a billion dollars? Well, who owns who owns who owns the Avengers? Who owns Disney? They are not yeah, regretting so anything. They're not regretting jack shit right now. They're <laughs> sitting back and just, you know, they're probably people tossing $100 bills at strippers in Studio 21 or whatever that 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 back bar that they've got on site is. And so I yeah, I do wonder if I wonder if Disney is maybe kicking themselves a little bit, but truth be told, they don't need. I know, to... but like it can't hurt their brand. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I think George Lucas was more open to allowing Star Wars imagery mm-hmm. and iconography to be parodied or to be borrowed, uh, when he owned the company, he had no problem with fan videos, uh, being unlicensed and, and fan edits. 
And, you know, the family guy, he he didn't care that they used Star Wars cartoons and The Simpsons. He oh, never cared funny. that they would, like, parody Star Wars. But Disney is just, it's a different beast altogether. And I think it's, you know, they've got, Star Wars is actively out. It's a series that's in movies right now. So they are probably, they probably just were afraid. They don't want to sign over the right to this lucrative, like, currently used property to Warner Brothers. Yeah. And I would get that. I mean, and that and Disney is a master at brand control. Yeah. And not so much to say that George isn't, but but you're right. I mean, Disney handles Mickey Mouse. They've handled uh, a number of people sort of crossing over onto their they've, territory. They've changed copyright law to continue to control the copyright of Mickey Mouse because wow. he should be in the public domain right now. But they have altered the laws of the United States to to extend all their copyrights to to go well past past the seventy five year expiration date of, of whatever you know the original copyright law Sounds is. Sounds like IOI business going on there. <laughs> yeah, basically. Mickey's got a big fat cigar, is yeah. what it is, and he's just sitting back there. <laughs> Those motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can't use our shit <laughs> and it's weird because they don't no. even use mickey for anything he's just like a total corporate icon he's not they're not making mickey mouse movies well it, it they're i don't they do have a disney channel that they continue to do mickey and some cartoon shows yeah and, but we're, and, when we're talking about movies it's a whole other realm it's, right. it's all about the guy wearing the mickey uh suit at disney world yeah but, <laughs> They've invested also billions in buying the rights to Star Wars. So anything that could put that to risk. And I, and I sometimes wonder if the plots that they come up with suffer, because when you reflect back to we spent billions on this, we can't fuck this up. Yeah. The movies that seem to do great are the ones where they're kind of like, eh, we don't really care if it fucks up all that much. It's a side thing. Yeah. We're going like, to throw it out there because it act, accentuates the following movies, but we don't care. So... Uh, the for example black panther right possibly the best movie maybe second to the most recent avengers infinity war arguably to wrap that back to the movie uh, you know you kind of wonder that here is the movie that that would require a lot of money risk wise that they would not probably do a three parter that you couldn't do the book justice without it being a three parter and the fact that they were able to entice Spielberg into actually directing the movie, which is, you know, that's that is truly the leverage here to get the additional cash. And then the marketing effort that went into this, the amount of money they spent for the marketing effort was well above and beyond any movie I think I've ever seen. Even to the point of creating the stacks at, was it South by Southwest that they did it this right. year? Right. Do you have a figure on the marketing number by any chance? I don't, but my understanding was that it was twice as much as the cost to make the movie. Not twice as much, but equal to as the amount much, it yeah. cost to make the movie. So, it, so if it, the movie costs like 150 million, they paid 150 million for marketing efforts. Right. So Damn. then it's like then you have to adjust the box office. If it only makes 500 million worldwide, how big of a hit is it when you figure marketing into the costs? Right. Yeah. Right. So there's there's when people were coming back and saying this made 68 million in the first weekend, that's really good. But when you step back and say, well, they made, they spent $300 million making the movie with marketing costs attached to that, then you're like, whoa, they are very far away from success. Yeah. But they've since flown well past that. Number. Okay, good. So that's nice. Uh, yeah. 
they've done very successful, particularly overseas. Like my understanding is that in China, it got eaten up fantastically. Wow. That's nice. Uh, it's weird because the Chinese audience is so fickle. They, you can never tell what they – I think The Last Jedi only made like $5 million there or something pathetically low. Well, when we talk about the things that you have to change in the book to make it right for the movie, here's an interesting nuance. In one of the, in one of the forums we were talking, one of, the, one of the guys that's in the forum claims to work in the movie industry. And I don't know. I didn't vet him. But he said he worked mm-hmm. in the industry. I said, well, well, what did you see that struck you as a movie thing? He says, well, for the first thing is that it's Shoto and Daito. But Shoto is cut to show. And the reason right. why is because Shoto is Japanese, show is Chinese. Wow. And in order to, for any movie to be shown in China, you have to have a Chinese character speaking Chinese. <laughs> yeah, what? there you go. That's it. That's the fucking requirement. So they showed it in his name down to show, and they had him say a couple lines in Chinese. Maybe it was like an expression. Like, holy fuck was like in Chinese <laughs> or something along those lines. Or maybe it was just like hello or some greeting, right. some shit. It was enough to get it past, just squeeze it past the requirements for it to be shown in China. But that that's an example of like these fucking hurdles. This is, again, why I say I'm so happy that I was able to see the movie. I wish maybe that I hadn't read the book in advance mm. because I feel like maybe the book would without... have been like a nice treat after if you like the movie, which mm. I did. I thought it was a nice, pleasant experience. Then it's like, oh, this, let me check out the book. And then you're like, wow, the book's actually way more depth to it and more interesting. Yeah, you know, Chris, I, so that, yeah. Chris, you'd have been absolutely useless word. on this podcast, though. <laughs> I would be useless on this podcast if I hadn't read the book. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's my uh, final thing I'll say is like, see the movie first, then read the book in the case of Ready Player One. You will not be disappointed either time. That's fair. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's do a final round on on comments. Has anybody first off changed the rating? You know, we had an eighty-five, uh, a fifty. Aaron, what was yours? You said it was an eighty-three. No, seventy-three. I, seventy-three. I think I gave it a seventy-three. After reflecting on the movie again, has anybody changed their numbers? Yeah, I have. Uh, <laughs> Chris, Chris you up. Chris, you convinced me to. You convinced me that this was like a really interesting movie for a lot of reasons. The fact that Spielberg directed it, the fact that there's so much going against it from being made properly, um, it is it, like a lot of it, it. I did I did have that sense watching the movie. It's it's it was fascinating to see come to life. And although it's never going to match our expectations and our you know visions of what we had of having read the book, there's something mm-hmm. like just fundamentally interesting about the story of the movie, uh, having just existing. So I'm bumping my score from a five to a six. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Aaron? Any movement in your score? No, I, I think my score is going to stay put. I think the only thing that'll uh, move in any direction will be going to see it again, uh, especially now that I have the nervousness of seeing it the first time and hoping that it came out decent is gone. Like I, I can just, I can go and be just completely there and, really focusing on the movie itself and not how good it comes out. I, I, that's what it'll take for me. So I'm going to stick with my 73 for now with the solid 73, a solid 73 with the right, right to change it after my next viewing, whenever that might be. <laughs> uh, I think, I think it might change. I don't know. It, you've got a pretty good memory of what happened there. Let me, let me do, let's do a last segment here. Of of a noticeable Easter egg. Uh, did anybody see or perceive any 
any nested meanings or Easter eggs so, in the movie that they thought jumped out. So, Chris, I had mentioned this to you before we recorded the previous podcast, and I don't think you really believed it or not. But uh, mm-hmm. now that uh, Willie is here, I'll see what you think. So when uh, was her, was her name? Uh, Finale Zandor, that character, mm-hmm. when she first <laughs> showed up on the screen, the first thing that popped to my mind was uh, Rachel, the replicant from Blade Runner. Mm. She like the like similar hairstyle, very similar uh, uh, shape in the face. She just looked exactly like Sean Young from Blade Runner to me. Interesting. I don't know. It wouldn't be the first time that a, that a character in that movie was fashioned particularly after a, another character, and I don't remember whom. I think somebody had mentioned either Anorak. Something along those lines, and a comment was made, hey, was this character modeled after this other person? Oh, no, it was the, um, uh, what's his name? The guy who ended up, the uh, curator. <gasps> right, and, and that, Arthur was that was it, that Simon Pegg. Well, Simon Pegg paid the voice, but oh. the actual image of the face what? and the, the persona was after, who did you say it, it was, was like, again? It was like Arthur Treacher. I don't know if that's how oh, you pronounce mm-hmm. it, but uh, he played a lot of um, butlers. Oh wow! In films, and if you, and if you look him up, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. It look it looks you like are, teacher. You're right. With a, it is. Uh, but if you look at some of the pictures of him as an older m- man, you see like, oh yeah, there it is. That's a curator. That's a hell of a deep cut. Do the search. Do yeah. the search now, and then go into Google Arthur Treacher as you would imagine it would be spelled. Go into images. Okay. And that second row, far right. Yeah, I see it. And and they actually came back and said, absolutely, that's who we did it after. Ah, thank you for remembering that, Aaron. That's a great nugget. And and uh, I remember seeing something along those lines, but I just couldn't remember the details. But I thought it was really cool that they modeled that after this particular person. Because that, that is a deep cut. Like, I wouldn't... This is such an old reference. Yeah. This goes well before the 80s. Yeah, I feel like every time you watch it, you're going to find, oh, look, there's that thing. I didn't know that was there. Right. The uh, the Easter egg that, and I don't think this is an Easter egg, but I thought it was an interesting nuance in the race when he's going backwards. He comes down underneath the track. And if you're a gamer at all, then you know that there's a thing called a wall hack. And what a wall hack means is that there is a space in the union or the joining of of polygons where your character as its own set of polygons can squeeze through and potentially pop through. And that might sound weird, but you can literally in some maps like crawl and sort of dig your butt into a corner and then you just wiggle just right. And it's enough to glitch out the system due to speed. Fans of Mario Kart 64 know it all too well. The advantage to that is that when you pop through the other side, game developers don't, you have a wall, but they don't texture the both sides of the wall. They just do one side, the side that you can see. So if you're on the other side of the wall, you see through. You don't see the back side of the texture. You just see through it. Because from that angle, the programmer has not, hasn't developed out that part or that side of the wall. So the advantage to game hacking is the ability both to see through the wall and potentially shoot through the wall, knowing that no one can see you. And if they tried to shoot you, it would hit the front of the wall where the texture is, you know, and wouldn't go through. That when Parzival goes backwards and through, he's looking up through the underside of the world. He just committed 
a visual wall hack. I thought that if there was any way to really deeply express how wall hacks worked, this was super cool. I was a little surprised that this was coming from Spielberg, that this is kind of like what a wall hack might look like in this universe. The ability to see through the 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 road above him to see all of the cars and whatnot doing what they do. This reminded me very much of wall hacking as he's driving through the underside of this software to, to make it to the first key. And, and to me, this was a, a neat, maybe not a, a, an Easter egg, but definitely a gamer slash hacker reference. Yeah. I like that too. I, I, I think I noticed that maybe on a subconscious level. And I, I, like I said, visually the race scene is amazing top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, all right. So before we close up, does anybody else have any any final or closing comments on the movie that they want to that they didn't get to stick in here? I I could run through a quick list. Go for <laughs> it. So Mecha Godzilla was fucking awesome. Oh geez, yes. Oh, that was fucking. Oh, that was brilliant. Um, I really missed all even, even the build up. Oh yeah, I really wish we had seen the Tomb of Horrors. Uh, mm. I really missed Ultraman, and I feel like there wasn't enough Ogden Morrow. Mm. Uh, there, yeah. there was just so many little snippets of of Og in the book, like when he's being interviewed, that like just build up his character, and I really felt like we missed that. I did not get enough Simon Pegg. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did not really like the whole "Welcome to the Rebellion" aspect of the story. Yeah, I could have done without that. I thought the ability to buy artifacts. Yeah, on Incipio or wherever was that just seemed weird to me, and that might just be me being such a huge fan of the book, and that the whole idea of an artifact is that it's rare. You have to kind of earn it. Right. Uh, Well, some some artifacts were stacked. Some were being auctioned. Sure. Um, But the Zemeckis cube was pretty cool. I like that. I don't get the Zemeckis cube. What What is the reference to that? Uh, Zemeckis directed Back to the Future. Hence the backwards in time thing. There you Thank go. You. All right. Thank you. All right. They really just glanced over the whole H thing. Yeah. Like character was sidelined. Yeah. Totally. Like it was just like, oh, you're a woman. And okay. moving on. And, yeah. And and then we move on. And <laughs> right, right. The only relationship you get back to the original character in the book is the fact that it's played by that actress. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, okay. like they don't even touch upon it. Like, it, it to me that was just such an an important part of the the the, the discovery of the characters, and the mm-hmm. whole, oh well, that all doesn't matter to me. Like that was just glazed over. It just, I don't know. And again, it's it's a timing thing. They didn't have time to mm-hmm. just be like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like no, they were focusing more on him deciding that it doesn't matter that uh, Artemis has a birthmark. Fair point. All right. Willie, what say you? I didn't like how he earned the quarter. I thought that was sad and boring. Oh, I like that. I, I would have wished he played a video game. It didn't have to be Pac-Man, but or I wish he just earned the quarter more interestingly. Um, and uh, last thing I'll say is I, I really liked uh, the James Halliday actor. I wish there was more scenes involving, involving him. I thought he was really funny. Like when he told uh, Nolan Sorrento to that the coffee was really good or something and um and dismissed all <laughs> this his is really good coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was hilarious. So that's the last thing I have to say about the movie. All right. All right. A couple points for me. I like that they shifted some of the storyline to Artemis. I feel like they gave her character more prominence, more importance. 
uh, when we were talking about the glancing over as far as the relationship between H and Parzival and H, the discovery of H being female, particularly when like they're in that back alley and she grabs them and they say that thing and that the two of them know together. That scene of discovery was shifted to Artemis and Artemis gets onto the truck and she stops and the dialogue is almost identical between H and Artemis and not H and Parzival. Mm. I like the fact that they shifted uh, the risk part of it, the sacrificial part of it to Artemis, that that helped to even out the weight of the responsibility for this large endeavor onto more people's shoulders. What I did not like was that Shoto and Daito felt like very second. They were they were, oh, they were tertiary, tertiary characters at best. They weren't even second and, or third fiddle. They were like <laughs> tertiary, the third fiddle. They were fiddle. in the That's nosebleed section. They really were. Um, I really hoped that there would be more to that. Uh, I loved the fact that we got to see the Serenity ship. Oh, yeah. Fuck e- yeah. Even for a couple moments. Like, there were two moments where they show it. It flying in and then dropping off Daito. And then lastly, I love how they digitally built out the vehicles. And, yes. And the Mechagodzilla. Like, you think in your mind, and this is one of those little moments <clears throat> where you're like, they throw the car out. You know you can put it in your pocket. They throw it out, and it expands. But every movie does it differently. So for Ant-Man, it literally kind of shrinks and you have this sort of visual echo of the thing as it was. And then, boom, it's small. Whereas in this movie, it's literally like the polygons are drawing out before your eyes. And it just it just when he threw the 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 DeLorean down and then, you know, the wheels pop out, the gearbox pops out, the engine builds, all the electronics fly in, and just as you've circled around, boom, it just completes itself. With the Mechagodzilla, it's described in the book as climbing up through the leg, which it makes sense if you throw it down and it gets big and you got to get into it. But that he stood on this platform that, like, elevated with the spine. Ah. In my mind, it's it's very. If there's anything I like about the Transformers movies, is that moment where it goes right. But with this movie, that they visually turned that into uh, just this really sort of surreal and and visceral moment that it just builds out, wraps around, and then the skin comes on it and it locks down. Uh, I saw that, and you know the hairs on my arms stood when I first saw that with the DeLorean. I think I almost stood up and like shouted <laughs> like cheers of joy when that happened. I was like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the DeLorean. It's those little moments that I love. But uh, but I, we've spent a lot of time on this. And I'm there's we could probably spend another three. We could spend more time than there is Bluetooth power in your headphones, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're dying. So with that... <laughs> With that, I'm going to wrap up the episode. Willie, thank you so much for coming on. I graciously appreciate that you have a differing perspective. I think that yours is a common voice among a number of people in the community. And and for maybe not yourself, but for others not being prepared for that to go in, that if we were to say that, look, it's got a 74 at the moment. It's like, Well, that score is not that bad in this day and age. Yeah, but so at least it I, wasn't I, a 25. But I guess the flip there is I'm just so appreciative that they made it because of how impossible after the fact the movie seems to have been. I I think you sold me on that. Yeah. 
Can, can we also say that I am like super happy for Ernest Klein that he got to he got Steven Spielberg to direct the movie? Oh my god, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. It's, that was that was the first best thing that could happen for this movie was getting him on because if it was anybody other than Steven Spielberg, uh, I fear that we wouldn't have it wouldn't have gotten the money, it wouldn't have gotten the clout, it wouldn't have got people willing to hand over the reputation of their properties to be used in the movie. <laughs> uh, it just yeah, again, it's just an impossible scenario that came together. So, yeah. uh, I but I really appreciate the discord because I think deep down it affected everyone that read the book in different ways. Well, like, well, well. First of all, I want to say thank you for having me. I, it's always a blast to talk to your show, to you, Chris, to you, Aaron, um, to Ryan if he's out there, uh, to all the other uh, people in the the get to the uh, good part community and the Ready Player One community. It's really nice uh, just to to lend my voice uh, to these discussions. I, I find it immensely fun. Um, I, I am a really big fan of the book, so you know, if, if don't be offended by my opinions of the movie, uh, the, you know, uh, the, stack them against my my deep appreciation for the book and the fun I've had with it. And I just want to say thank you again. And if uh, you like me, um, feel free to uh, listen to my podcast, the X Men Task Podcast. It's a lot of fun too. That's a that's Absolutely. a great show. It, oh, it really is. So yeah, by all means, please do williesimpson.com or just Google. X-Men TAS podcast and that TAS yeah. stands for the animated series, but uh, it's, it's an awesome podcast and you guys do a fantastic job at it. All right. But to wrap up, this is Chris. I'm Aaron. I'm Willie. Willie. Thank you for joining us in this show and to everyone else listening. Thank you for getting to the good part. I'll catch you next chapter. <laughs>